in this video, somebody poisoned the waterhole with the Gooford Grapevine by Charles Waddell Chestnut coming up today for a discussion. Gooford? The Gooford? I had to look it up. It's this crazy old North Carolina word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Codex Cantina where I am Una. And I am the Goof Crypto. <laughs> If you are new to the Codex Cantina, we take some of the most important literature that has influenced even today's authors. If you are down for a conversational approach to discussing and understanding that literature, please make sure you hit the subscribe button to join us. And as always, we start off with publication information. This story was published first in the Atlantic Monthly in 1887. The Gooper Grapevine was Chestnut's first Uncle Julius story. We'll leave a link in the description below where you can read and listen to both of those for free. So this author was what's called passing at the time of publication, where he was a man that had mixed racial backgrounds with some black in him. And in America at this time, if you had any black blood in your background, you were considered black by white Americans. People who were passing who were light-skinned enough to maybe fool the white Southerners into not realizing that they had black heritage, that's Charles Waddell Chestnut as he pushes this story out into the Atlantic, a huge publication at the time, and he is the first black man to thus be published as such. I think that's important because he is a black man that is writing a story very obviously for a white audience. And I love the way that this is written. To, we're, we'll get into this. We'll get into this today because this is his first of the Uncle Julius stories, Tales from the Conjured. It's all about that kind of fear element into it. But we're going to be talking about some frame narrative tools within this text. We're going to talk about greed and deception and potentially a little bit of form of uh, allegory or symbolism of the South as a whole as one way to interpret this text. So let's get into the meat and bones of this story. Una hit me with the plot because I know it has some delicious North versus South Civil War implications. <laughs> this story is narrated by John, a northerner, as he sets up kind of this frame narrative. And Uncle Julius, the black man, is kind of the one who's delivering the framed story, if you will. So John and his wife, Annie, head south looking for a vineyard and a black man, Uncle Julius tells them that they wouldn't want to purchase this land. Why? Because it's Gooford. <laughs> he explains that the landowner back in the day that had this property was tired of his slaves eating the grapes and thus eating into his profit of the grapes that he would grow here. Tired the witch. So he has it Gooford to basically curse the land so that when the slaves would then eat the grapes... They would die from, from the curse basically put on it. So several of them consume the Gooford grapes and several of them thus die. Soon he goes to purchase a new slave. And at that time when the buggy man comes and he goes and eats some grapes before he even knew that it was Gooford, you know, suddenly they realize that he is now cursed to die. So they rush him to the local witch doctor, uh, Henry, I believe his name was, to basically kind of save his life. But ultimately then that ties him to the land. As the grapes grow anew, anew grows Henry. At the end of the season, when the grapes are dying and shriveling, Henry dies and shrivels in a sense too. And this goes in this cyclical cycle until the landowner realizes, hey, 
I can make some money off of him. So he starts selling Henry at a profit and healthy at the beginning of the season. And then at the end of the season, when he's sick and dying, he graciously offers to buy back Henry at a discounted price and thus kind of runs this game with Henry over several seasons. Soon, a northerner arrives on the plantation grounds and offers him a solution to double the growth of his vines. Well, we can't pass that up. However, it's kind of like a little bit of a trick where it actually kills the land and thus also kills Henry. Our landowner just becomes infuriated with the North as a result and cannot wait to join the war and go off and fight. He does, and he dies. His wife kind of moves on, and thus the plantation grounds go untended, by a white man at least, for a long period of time. Flashback to our framing narrative story here with with John. So John goes ahead and purchases this land anyways. Even, Even though this man's telling him he's goofered, he thinks there's a secret you know, behind the land. So he goes ahead and purchases it anyways, and kind of hires Julius to work the land for him, only later to realize that there's a cabin on the land and that Julius was already selling and growing the grapes anyways, just now he's also being paid for it. A little bit of a little trickery there at the end. I was really hoping that we would get a plot twist since there was already that super a supernatural element to it, that Julius was going to be Henry or something else. I was hoping for a little bit of a twist, but I still loved it. Still a really cool story. So moving into analysis, my first question for you, Crypto, is whose story is this? I think that's a tough one to answer. You're obviously going to be drawn to possibly Julius, possibly Henry, possibly the original plantation owner. But I ultimately think that it's the narrator's story and him learning about the past of this vineyard and the South. And we have to remember that Chestnut was passing at the time of writing this. So you'll notice that as the narrator's introduced, they don't really mention his skin colored. But when they enter, when enters Uncle, you know, Uncle Julius, they describe him as a colored man, assigning color to him with the assumption that this is coming from a structure of whiteness, even though it is being written by a black man. Yeah, exactly. So the frame narrative is set up with these elements of myth in the story in terms of poisoning the ground, in terms of this curse that's being put on them, being tied to the the fertility and life and virility of the of this this grapevine. Yeah, and I love how that like the elements of nature and life are tied in as well, and it's kind of cyclical that it always keeps coming back to the same thing over and over. And it's kind of that idea that the positive will become negative, negative will become positive because the land was positive, then it went negative, then it went positive then negative and now the guy the narrator of the story is buying it and is becoming positive again so it's always going in this cycle oh i love the way you said that because think about this this is a frame narrative story we're being transported as an audience into the past uh maybe are we cyclically recreating the sins of the past is something that i think we need to ask here so we can evaluate this the flashback from the white man, Mars Dougal, right? Who's who's ultimately the most detached person from the story and arguably the most evil, right? He's the one perpetuating sin in the sense of he's literally buying, buying and committing into slavery. He's taking advantage of his neighbors with this Henry trick. Like he he's clearly the one we're not supposed to associate with and is the one that is representing the perpetuation of slavery. Yeah, I think he kind of represents evil in the story and what maybe Chestnut is prying... I think what Chestnut is trying to convey overall of his story is this is the representation of the problem with society and the racial tensions that we have, and we need to fix it somehow. So going back to your concept of the cycle earlier, too, now in this frame narrative, 
do the blacks have any power in how the plantation or things are run? Yeah, I mean, slaves ran away, slaves would refuse to work, the slaves would, you know, run off into the woods to do fun things. So they had a minute amount of power to resist, but there were consequences to that. Yeah, I'm going to disagree on the power aspect of that. I'm going to say that that was a way of rebelling, but that wasn't power. But what I think we're meant to do is kind of compare this a little bit to the present tense. So once again, the white man, John, is trying to buy economies in the same way that Mars Dougal, the old landowner, was buying and selling slaves, perpetuating slavery and taking advantage of his neighbors. Well, here comes John, who's trying to set up a new land, try to buy some property. But this time, the difference is we've gone through the Civil War, which has freed the slaves at the time and has arguably given them a lot more power. Are they equal? No. But in post-Reconstruction era, they did have to be paid and they were afforded some legal um, abilities at the time that they were denied as slaves is one way to frame the differences between these two eras. Yeah, for sure. I think one other way to kind of frame it too is that John is learned the mistakes of the past, has learned from the lessons of the Civil War, and that he's supposed to represent the better modern white man that is going to be the carpetbagger going down in the South to help rebuild in a positive note and not be the evil that is going to take advantage of the black population and take advantage of the South southern land and and be something that is a force for good well and maybe just two historians don't always agree um, i i don't know if i view as carpetbaggers as a positive influence I, I think i maybe maybe it depends on the the perspective that you're applying to this but to me the carpetbaggers were moving down and trying to take advantage of a destitute and broken society that was attempting to rebuild is one way that i would phrase it But at the time, blacks had more power. And you'll notice in the story, Uncle Julius, what he's doing is essentially taking advantage of that moment. He's the one that is actually kind of getting the double winnings in the situation with being paid for something now that he was already doing and getting paid for. Oh, sure. I think that he is taking advantage of clearly the situation. But I think that he is also uh, himself trying to perpetuate this idea of, well, there's this myth and this curse and I can stay here for free if I can, you know, scare these people off. And that's kind of back to the idea of this North versus South thing where the South just wanted to continue doing their thing and they wanted to keep the the North away. And that's what Uncle Julius is trying to do here, I think. I think I kind of also took it a little bit as an allegory or maybe even a metaphor for the South as a whole. You know, very quickly in this story, we cycle through the the concept of slavery of buying and selling people for your own personal gain and taking advantage of whatever you can to build up more people, more land for yourself, which is what the South was built on, right? Along comes a northerner, mind you. The guy that poisoned, you know, um, Dougal's land was a northerner. And what did the North do in the southerner view is they poisoned the southern way of life by taking away slavery, taking away their sustenance, their way of, at the time, surviving. So so in the southern view, the northerners were coming along and poisoning their land, and what happened? They go to war, many people die in the war, and the same thing that happened with this story. And it all comes back to land, right? And that's the buying and the selling of this land, the invasion of land, and somebody's trying to own the land or poison the land. It it all is the crux around that. So I think there is definitely a heavy metaphor here for the South, especially knowing Chestnut's background. Well, and then what happened with the South and how it was rebuilt? I think what Chestnut is saying here is that the African-American community, the now freed ex-slaves, 
had a big role in rebuilding that. Because you'll notice the way Uncle Julius is kind of phrasing the way that he's viewing this land is he knows which parts of the land are good and bad. Like he can see the difference between the poisoned and and negative ways as opposed to the now more positive ways of moving forward. And in the same way that he had no power, the, the black community had no power under slavery, now Uncle Julius has some of that power as we were talking about earlier. And it's a role reversal. Where in the frame narrative story, okay, who was doing the trickery was the white man and he had all the power. Well, now in the in the story that kind of wraps up around it, who's doing the trickery? We have Uncle Julius doing the tricker, trickery, who's saying that you kind of need me also to rebuild the land. I would argue that maybe Chestnut's even saying that the black community is going to play an important role in the reconstruction of America. If he's doing it all on his own, part of the land is still poisoned. But when the northerner comes in and Julius and the narrator work together, the farm comes back to being prosperous again. And only when those two communities work together are things going to get better. And Julius wants things to be better. It's his home. He wants the farm to be successful. But he's leery of, you know, the the, the northerner coming down and maybe doing something that he saw or heard about that happened to the farm before. And what I love about this is just the way in which Chestnut delivers this. This was all written in a very deceptive way. Like you don't realize what's coming until like the very last page of the story when you thought it was going one direction and he just flips it at the end. And I think that's just incredibly powerful for him to have written essentially for a white audience in terms of who was reading The Atlantic and purchasing it and to have kind of taught and and inserted this lesson and this maybe maybe allegory of the south and the sin of the south very well done and very aggressive too with if you'll notice after basically like maybe the first page it's almost like a hundred percent dialect with with uncle julius telling the story that's going to take work that's going to take effort particularly from a modern standpoint, to get through. I think it is a time period piece for sure that it's going to be easier for individuals from that time period to read. But I also think that Chestnut is trying to write this to say, hey, let's break these racial stereotypes and you can understand where we're coming from. And you can also try to empathize where we want to go with this in our future as a, as a peoples, as a nation together. It's brilliantly written. Well, I will say I I don't have a ton of research done on it, but I did read one article uh, from someone talking about it from when this was published, and they talked about even then about how some of the dialogue was, I'm not going to say more difficult than today, but it was challenging even by those standards of the day. Oh, yeah, I definitely struggled. I had to read some sentences two and three times, but that didn't detract from my enjoyment of the story. It actually made me, I think, enjoy and appreciate that much more. No, I, I think this story was absolutely incredible. This was this was a joy to work through. It was work, but it was very pleasurable to go through it. We're, we're going to leave a playlist down below for more chestnut stories as we go through them. We already have some more scheduled in the future. What a wonderful writer to kind of dissect and talk about. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Crypto, let's move into our wrap-up and ratings. What are you going to give this story? Oh, uh, this is an easy nine. Uh, I, I think that... Had they had a little more science fiction twist at the end, I maybe could have given it a 9.5 mm. or pushed into mm-hmm. that 10 because it's got Civil War, credible characters, great writing, great dialogue. It's almost perfection. It, it, it's got like the, that's not trifecta, but that's that's more. It's got the fivefecta. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, 9 out of 10. Love this story. I recommend this wholeheartedly. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And, and it, historically, it's important, too, as one of the first nationally publicated uh, black authors, right, in terms of, of reaching it into the Atlantic magazine. So easy nine out of 10 for me as well. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, every time you guys share, comment, it helps us out, and we appreciate that. If you're down for literature discussions like what we do here today, please make sure you hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey as we publish videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. Peace.